This is episode 53 of the Brilliant Podcast. And we are continuing our conversations with Isaac Cronin. Our hope is that this is actually going to be the last episode that we do that's sort of in the in the narrative interviewee type form, and that the uh, we do one last episode that's sort of uh, Isaac re- responding to questions that uh, you all have. So if you're still listening in, uh, I believe this is the eighth time that Isaac and I have sat down, uh, prepare your questions, uh, make them big, long, detailed, gnarly questions. So Isaac actually has something to bounce off of. Or insults or criticisms too, right? Sure, Not just absolutely. questions, right? So um, one of my pet peeves is that everyone in the world is on drugs. And so this is a topic that I was never able to actually get a book published on. Um, I tried right around 2000. um, I was living in New York with a collaborator, Roger Gregoire, and we decided we wanted to write a book about the pharmaceutical industry. Not from the typical point of view that they were greedy, which is such an obvious banal point, and there are plenty of essays and books and criticisms of how they make super profits, not unlike the arms industry, but because everything that they did was based on bad science, on bad assumptions, Um, the traditional allopathic, rational model of medicine uh, we believed was false. So we, we had an interesting journey through the publishing world. We wrote up a proposal in a kind of standard way, which is like if everyone is, anyone's ever written a nonfiction book proposal, you write two chapters, an outline, and an explanation of why your book is different than anyone else's. And that's the standard. If you don't want to write the whole book and you have some publishing history, which I did, you write 30 pages and hope that someone will buy it off that. So we wrote that. And uh, we were universally rejected because the two of us had no scientific bona fides, no CVs. We were just amateurs uh, with a point of view, citizens, let's say. And, you know, it was interesting because um, today, actually, I went back and I looked at what happened in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century with amateurs who were Renaissance men, or whatever you want to call them. They were well-educated people with no formal training in the field that they um, became authorities in later, or recognized as authorities. And there were some amazing people who did things like discover uh, genetics. Uh, Gregor Mendel was a a monk in a, a monastery who had no formal training, and he discovered the laws of biological inheritance. Um, there was a guy called Robert Evans who was a minister in, um, uh, in an Australian church who discovered supernovas. There was Michael Faraday, the guy who pioneered electricity, uh, who ended up working um, as an assistant to um, uh, Humphrey Davy, who was the world's authority on ele- electromagnetism, and he had no back- formal background in it and was still called boy, literally, as he went around with him. Uh, there was a guy called William Herschel who discovered the planet of Uranus in 1787. And then there was this interesting guy who was an expert in almost everything uh, scientific called Thomas Jefferson. And, and he was apparently a world-renowned or almost world-renowned expert in anatomy, civil engineering, physics, meteorology, architecture, botany. He had one of the world's great research gardens um, with heirloom plants in 1800, geography and anthropology, and he wrote and read German, Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. So he was an, a dabbler in every man. But in this era, that kind of level of participation in a lot of different topics, and I was always interested in a lot of things, and I was not an expert in any case by any means in any of them, was not allowed. But in another era, there were some great discoveries for people who were... I mean, I think the best word for them is like activists, scientists, citizens, but not even scientists, just concerned individuals who were able to make discoveries, in part, I think, because they didn't have the specialization and the prejudices that we have now, right? That allowed them to have an actually an open mind. They didn't have an agenda. Anyway, so we... um, we failed to find a publisher, and this was the year 2000. I've kept these notes ever since. Um, I have various ideas about how to recycle them, whether it's like 
a, an episodic TV show in a hospital or, or uh, a graphic novel, but I haven't given up because I think there's a lot of interesting core ideas. Well, and for people who are around in the Bay Area, you did do a workshop on this topic. I did. Was it just last year? Yeah, I did a workshop yeah. on the topic, and I, you know, and and I this have is at, I, the, at the Bastard Conference last spring, right? And I'm very impassioned by it because obviously. You know, like everyone else, I have a mind and a body, and I want to treat it as kindly as possible. So, my introduction to alternative medicine, which we commonly called um, allopathic, uh, excuse me, we call um, holistic as opposed to allopathic. So, allopathic is the traditional history going back to Descartes of the rational approach, the separation of mind and body, and essentially reductionist. My, my introduction to an alternative was... I was the son of a, of a doctor. I was raised in a medical household. I believed basically that the standard assumptions that, you know, doctors prescribe drugs for specific diseases and those diseases were probably cured by those drugs until I had a child and this was 1979. My son had very sensitive skin and he had um, kind of gory, but a, a diaper rash, and the, the more medicine we put on it that was the standard over-the-counter prescription, the uglier it got, till he was literally bleeding in his diapers and he was crying. So this is like not something a parent can ignore. So we had had a home birth with him, so we went to the midwife, and she said, well, there's this doctor who actually is a medical doctor, and he's become a homeopath, and He's brilliant, and you should go see him. So his background is really pretty interesting. He's deceased. He died in the early 90s. His name was Harvey Palson. He was the head of psychiatric services at Cal Hospital at UC, and he was actually fired for, say, for saying that marijuana might be bad for you. Uh, it was a big controversial case. But he had been a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and his wife was dying of some unnamed an unnameable neurological disorder, and he found a homeopath who was actually an amateur. And that homeopath saved his wife's life. Mm. So he gave up everything. He gave up his psychoanalytic practice, very lucrative, his psychiatric practice, his role in the traditional medical community, and studied homeopathy with his wife. So it's like a classic, almost religious conversion. But he was super smart, and I know this sounds like a cliche, but in his presence, you actually felt calmer. Um, and he was a very effective homeopath. And homeopathy, for people who don't know, is often in dispute because essentially you take a mineral or a plant and you dilute it beyond Avogadro's number, so there's no sign of the original substance. And you take that mystical-seeming medicine and it's harmless if it doesn't work. And if it does work, it is pretty miraculous. So, uh, that's, you know, there's a lot of skepticism, huge skepticism around that. Anyway, my, my um, son was given the remedy in, I think it was, let's see, it was um, 19, he was one, so 1979, and he woke up and it was all gone. So, it was like one of those miracle cures. So, we became devotees of that because of the effectiveness of it. And we all took remedies for various things ranging from depression to earaches and, um, it was remarkably effective, and no one can explain why it works, but I mean, in the end, does it really matter if you know why it works? If it, I mean, we know how um, traditional medicine works. It's incredibly powerful, and it destroys the symptoms and leaves you with side effects. We all know how that works. So, that was the beginning of my interest in that, and um, it was a very powerful emotional and personal conversion. So, in... Uh, right around that period, I wrote a book, which I think is probably one of my least important books, <laughs> called Money, Myths, and Realities. And it's a very go-go 80s positive book about money that still has a critique, but uh, embarrassingly also has a lot of advocacy of money. And I gave this book to my homeopath, and he in turn said, there's a similar book that was written by... Uh, a Nobel-level physicist who became a biologist, uh, which is very similar to your book and how controversial it is and how it's unorthodox. And that book was uh, called... Very Anyway, his name was Walter Elsasser, and he was like the fourth or fifth best physicist on the Manhattan Project. Hmm. He wasn't a brand name, but he made a huge contribution. 
uh, and known in that world. So brilliant physicist at um, Johns Hopkins. And so like a lot of physicists in that moment, they thought all the laws of physics had been discovered and they wanted to switch over to biology. So there was Schrodinger. These guys are not uh, Elsasser, but Nobel laureates who decided the real work was in biology, hmm. right? Because we figured out all the laws of physics and sure. it's time to train. Yeah, okay. So, so Elsasser wrote a book called The Natural Philosophy of, of Holism in which he posits, and, and there have been hundreds of people who followed up on his work since I, in, in the last 10, 15 years. He says that there's a process going on, which he called creativity, where there's the Darwinian idea of literal um, mechanical transmission of traits, but underneath it, there's another level of what he called decision-making or creativity, where biological life forms choose to be continuous. They actually make a selection. So this sounds like mumbo jumbo, but it's not. Anyway, it allows, and it talks about nanoparticles, and it, it, it explains in a way why homeopathy works. It explains that there's a molecular level that's going on that's verifiable in some ways by experimentation. So once we were, my partner and I, Roger, were cemented in that, we thought, okay, well, so not only are we going to be able to make a critique of traditional uh, reductionist Cartesian philosophy, we're going to be able to offer an alternative, which everybody wants. You're not going to just tear it down. Uh, you're not going to just take away Obamacare. You're going to provide the new system. So what we figured out and the way that we, we thought we could take this on was the, the uh, one of Elsasser's key concept is reductionism. So what he says is that in physics, you literally take a substance and then you break it down to a molecule and then you break it down to an atom, and then you break it down to the subparticles. And the lower you go in the system, the more reduced reductionist you find the particles, the closer you are to the truth. And that's the that's the, the history of physics is sure. you know going down the subatomic particles. I'm not I'm a great science historian here, but it's obvious. Okay, but what he said, which was really the key to his thesis and what allowed us to feel like we had something positive to say as well as negative is that when you do that with biological life you don't actually get to the truth so you cannot you know so the whole dna project that's going on now the idea of reducing it to the chromosomes the strands further and further does not actually reveal the truth of life because there is an irreducible part and he tried to prove this scientifically and numerically, and that is not, you cannot reduce it to the, to the traditional subatomic version of, of biological life because it won't predict future behavior. And so he tried to prove this mathematically using very large numbers um, because he said at a certain point, there's a, uh, there's a process in even the smallest uh, biological material that's called creativity, which is not rational. But you can prove it rationally. That was his, his physicist mm. side. And that's why this is brilliant, and that's why people have followed up on this. Anyway, okay, so, but what, but what he said was, um, there still is, reductionism is the key component of modern, of biological theory, right? That's obvious. We're all witnessing that, the Genome Project, right? And if you're going to actually find out someone's chromosomal structure, you can design a medicine that's perfect for them because it's one-off which they'll never really do anyway, but that's just the selling point, right? Sure. Okay, so there we were um, with this concept, and so um, we thought, okay, so social, what is, what, you know, there, people have tried to say that you cannot make any links, really profound links, between social theory, theories of the group, theories of individual or group public behavior, and biological theory. The idea that you can have... Uh, one theory that covers both of them has been highly disputed. You have, you know, and that's why you've got natural science and social science. Sure. That division goes back, mm -hmm. you know, to the Renaissance or whatever, right? You've got two very distinct fields of study, right? And there's there's some overlap, but not. So what we thought was, okay, and it's actually just occurred to me today that there's there's a link, even stronger link. What what is in what what they do have in common is reductionism, the idea that you the way you understand a subject is by reducing it to its smallest pieces. So now you have, beyond a doubt, physics having made progress in positing these laws. And in the uh, social field, you've got data, 
right? You've got, we, you've got, you know, you don't have common behavior like commodity consumption. You actually have this idea that if you can break down an individual's behavior to hundreds or thousands of little measurable through the internet and through surveys and through marketing bits of of social performance data, you've really got the individual captured. So to me, that seems like now the parallel between physics and social is this reductionist idea. You want to reduce the individual, not to an individual, because that's way too sloppy for marketing and capitalism, right? You don't want billions of individuals. You want billions of traits of, of data bits because you can't market to billions of individuals, oh. right? So you go one level further or several levels further. Anyway, so that, so in fact, we decided that, you know, the enemy, so to speak, um, is this method of reductionism, which began with Descartes. We have the mind and the body separated. So Descartes is the originator of this whole, he created the philosophical possibility and therefore the behavioral possibility of this, of these two approaches. Okay, so I know that's a long buildup, but anyway, okay, so now I'm going to go through and just give you some of the ideas that we put in here. And this is not systematic, but I think there's a lot of ideas that are hopefully provocative, if not original. So anyway, okay, here we go. So, uh, reductionism orig um, originated with Descartes, who spoke of uh, animals as machines. Today, biology and modern medicine are convinced that we can explain life by reducing it to the smallest particles, genes and, and protein molecules. So, and then, to me, there's a strong parallel with this uh, fetish of marketing data, like the individual. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but but it but it it's almost like the subatomic. It's the modern version in the market of subatomic particles. There are all these different mm -hmm. consumer behaviors, and I, actually, I just came up with that today, and I think it's pretty interesting. So, what happens in the modern paradigm is that. And now we're, now we're returning to the pharmaceutical industry because although we say it's a symptom and although we're not going to criticize it for the obvious uh, cliched reasons that it's an incredible cash machine, it's still an incredibly powerful force in our world and we have to try and understand it in the most profound way possible to protect ourselves from it if for nothing else, right? If just to survive this era. So the first assumption uh, we made is that our rulers, including the pharmaceutical system, their, their hope rests on the idea that we say, I am sick. There's something wrong with me. Uh, it's like an existential assumption. Rather than saying, the world makes me sick. Like, who has ever gone into a doctor's office and said, and in the case of homeopathy, you might have been able to get away with that. The problem is, the world is sick, and I'm manifesting certain symptoms of that. Can you help me? Actually, that's a bit more common nowadays with uh, so-called environmental diseases. Or yeah, sicknesses. right. It is. There's a bridge happening. Mm -hmm. There, it's not completely unheard of, but yes, that's true. And even and even people accusing electric electrical wires and cell phones. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Imagine if we went to the doctor and reported the social order makes me feel horrible. I know it's not my fault. No, but that if you went in and, and went to Kaiser and said that, like they wouldn't know what to do with you. I mean, they would just say, well, you might be right, but, you know, what are your symptoms? A psychiatrist, this is, this is an older era, this is 15, 20 years, so things have changed. A psychiatrist would immediately be summoned with the inevitable uh, diagnosis of paranoia. Um, unhappiness, depression, anxiety are a form of private property. We tend our own garden and go it alone. It is my problem and only I can fix it. This is what taking responsibility for one's own action means. I have to go it alone. The current thinking is that disease is caused by two interrelated sets of factors, biological and environmental, i.e. nature versus nurture. In fact, disease functions according to another logic, which is not discussed. For example, malaria is suppressed by spraying with DDT. A major victory actually uh, results in contributing to the increase in cancers for which science is not blamed because its cause is multidimensional. Individual disease rates of certain illnesses go down while the overall health of the population declines. Even if we live longer than we did in the 19th century, it doesn't mean that we have to die from modern illnesses. These are market-produced diseases not inherent to the human condition. Uh, so that's, that's an important way to look at that picture because we're, we're, we're just attuned to assume that 
I mean, it goes even further. Basically, any time this is, I mean, I know it's a radical thesis and people who've said they've had transcendent experiences with psychedelic drugs or dramatic uh, improvement from antidepressants will contradict us. But anytime you take a drug, this is, I'm willing to, you know, I really feel this strongly. And I've used drugs for, you know, like everybody else. Anytime you take a drug for whatever reason, anytime you take a drug, you're saying, I'm the problem. This is what you're doing. You're saying, when I take this drug, it can't be cured socially or it can't be cured as easily. And I want to get a quick fix. And the only way to do that is to take this drug. And that taking of that drug reinforces the idea that the world is not as much of the problem as the individual. Mm. And it's, I think it's a very powerful force and it happens all the time. And it doesn't really matter where you're taking Oxycontin or Advil or ecstasy or you know whatever you're taking on this personal responsibility for what is fundamentally a social issue and it's an incredibly profound habit that people have so um i don't know do you disagree with that for starters i'm not sure it matters um whether i whether i disagree i i sort of i think the concept is interesting to the extent to which it's another way to talk about our personal alienation mm-hmm. um, and perhaps a physical manifestation of it. So, yeah. So, so there's this idea of, of self-medication, right? This is a very common phrase. Like you're medicating because you know you have a problem and whether or not you can go to a doctor or care about what a doctor thinks, you know, you're taking responsibility for your own condition, right? It's a very common phrase. We, I think we all use it. Um, Especially people with full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my point is, it's not like you're self-medicating just because you take your friend's uh, antidepressants uh, that you don't want to pay for because you know they'll work, but you're self-medicating because you're taking the medicine, period. You're self and you're medicating, and that is the complicity. And even though people will say, you know, well, you don't know all the discoveries I've had or the need I have for this drug— it really literally gets you in the habit of thinking that you can take personal responsibility for your own life and somehow solve the problems that are never solvable except in a more social, profound way. And that's, I think, a very powerful routine that people get into. That's my point. Um, So anyway, um, then we move on to the, I think, flabbergasting fact that we weren't always doing this. We In 1970... Um, the global consumption, the U.S. consumption of, of course, we have this, you know, we're 47 years later and there's price inflation, but these numbers are really alone mathematically staggering. In 1970, the total sales of pharmaceuticals in the United States was $6 billion. 47 years later, they've gone up 70 times. The, the, the consumption of drugs in the United States is about between 400 and 500 billion dollars a year. And if you divide that into the number of people in the United States, I'm talking about men, women, infants, children, you know, aliens, whatever, right? The average person spends about $250 a month on medication. That's $3,000 a year. So that's a little secret. You know, the math is there to do. But, I mean, that's a, a truly staggering number, you know, to think about. So, that's about the same as car payment, right? If you're buying a new car, I would say that's average, right? You're buying a new car, you know, you're not buying a fancy car. I've done, you know, you're paying the same amount as you're paying for your automobile, for your medication. And that includes everybody, including, in, you know, people who are, you know. So, this is an incredible fact. Um, it's interesting to note that... I mean, it may be obvious, but it's interesting to note that science and commerce, in the case of the drug industry, are totally entwined. There's an incredible, uh, you know, military-industrial, pharmaceutical-industrial complex. And in the time of um, Galileo, when he was fighting um, the church and everyone else who said that the Earth was the center of the universe, there was an incredible... um, ideological stake that um, the orthodoxy had, but it was nothing like now. There was never any money involved. We have this incredibly intertwined system of belief, of ideology, 
and of commerce that is so strong that in, in some ways it's a lot stronger and more immediate than the defense complex. Because in the defense industry, you've got people who are making weapons and they're defending you. Here, you've got people personally saying, this system is, is making me able to survive. This is, you know, this is an, a very insidious force that, you, sure. that people don't really understand. It's not a death industry. It's a yeah, life industry. It's a life industry. Yeah. And you've led me right into my next point. So what is the first product that, that you consume as a human being at birth? Drugs in the hospital as an infant. What is the last product you consume as you're dying? Drugs on your deathbed. So this is literally the most important, comprehensive, complete, all-encompassing set of products in the world. And, um, and that's also very powerful. Okay. Um, so the uh, father of homeopathy was called Samuel Hahnemann. He was a German. He discovered the system in the 1760s. And what's interesting about comparing that to modern medicine is that the system of homeopathy has remained essentially unchanged since then. Basically, the idea was, and this I know sounds a bit odd, but when you take, if, if as a well person, you take a homeopathic remedy, which he did, he took hundreds and wrote this giant encyclopedia called the Materia Medica, whatever um, symptom that uh, remedy causes in a healthy person, it will cure in a sick person. And that's called like versus like. That was the law of homeopathy, which sounds contra-intelligent, but it worked. So essentially, homeopaths, and there, there's probably half a billion to a billion people around the world who are practicing homeopathy in India. I mean, the Queen of England is, only uses homeopathy, uh, and you know the, the royal family has only used homeopathy for hundreds of years. Mm. Um, this system has essentially uh, remained unchanged since then. But if you look at modern medicine, this is, you know, I'm not the first to say this, I'm probably the last, but, you know, the, the advances in in modern medicine were like in the 19th century, while homeopathy was actually, and actually in the flu epidemic of 1918, which came after World War II, where 2 million Americans died, homeopathy was actually an incredibly effective, and there's empirical data, I wrote a book, or was writing a book about homeopathy and biological warfare, so I did this research. Homeopathy was actually an incredibly effective tool against this deadly flu. If you look at this, the consistency of this, then you have 19th century traditional uh, medicine, which became modern medicine. They were using mercury, silver. They were poisoning people. They were killing them, mm -hmm. right? And there was, um, when Pasteur discovered uh, bacteria, there was almost 70 years from the time that he discovered bacteria until the time that penicillin was invented, because they didn't really have a theory. They didn't have a point of view. It was just random. They found something that worked randomly to cure. So there was never a system, you know. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a dark question about whether there is a system now, um, given that um, 100,000 people or more die from unexpected interactions of drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, or overdoses of pharmaceutical drugs. So that's the third leading cause of death in the United States after cancer and heart disease is the pharmaceutical industry itself. Anyway, so I mean, those are kind of um, almost National Enquirer headlines, but I, th I think it's really interesting to put into perspective. Um, okay, so, so Hahnemann actually had a theory of disease. He said disease was the result uh, not of the of the um, invasion of the body, although that's obviously true, the invasion of the body by outside forces, but a weakness in the vital force. And there are very similar concepts in all of alternative medicine, the chi or whatever, that the reason people get sick is not simply because there's a disease prevalent, but because there are essential weaknesses in the bodily force or the bodily spirit or the vital force. And that what homeopathy does is actually reinvigorate that system and allow the body to heal itself. And so that's, that was a, that's a very controversial idea because obviously it really downplays the role of medicine and medicines in, in the disease healing process. And, it, and, and Chinese medicine has the same concept as well, and chiropractic. So these, these things are all together. Anyway, so I've gone over the 
the incredible increase in so it was 2.7 billion dollars was the amount Americans spent on drugs in 1960 12 billion in 1980 120 billion in 2000 and 365 billion wow. by 2015 i mean i think i think that alone is an incredible condemnation of their failure because if they're really making people healthy why have that why is their use gone up by 70 times if they're actually effective right why are we spending 70 times more on medication and the and the obvious answer is because they're in the diagnosis business right they create a drug and then they invent a diagnosis. Now, I mean, when we worked on this proposal in 2000, there were very few people saying that. There's now a huge industry in saying that, right? There's a lot of alternative reformist halfway people who are saying that... There's been a lot of uh, stuff lately about this website, Goop. Uh-huh. It has a, a Hollywood starlet associated <laughs> with it. Right. So I think the most... So there's, there's a wonderful book I want to m- recommend uh, called Mad in America. And there's a newsletter called Mad in America. But I think the most profound um, example of, of that process is something that I experienced personally. So in 1965, I guess I mentioned this in earlier stuff. I was at an orderly in a veterans hospital in, in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And it was one of those back wards where the people who had been victims of what they called combat fatigue, PTSD in World War II, and the Korean War, because this was 1965, were a warehouse for the rest of their lives, and mostly. And they were, you know, they exhibited classic schizophrenic symptoms, paranoid symptoms, and some of them had been given electric shop, a few had had lobotomies. This was like, you know... One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, one flew over the cuckoo's nest territory. So, anyway, the star drug in that era which they were so proud of inventing because they called it a liquid lobotomy. <laughs> that was a compliment to the drug. was called Thorazine. And so it was a classic drug, antipsychotic drug. So in this book, uh, Robert Whitaker's his name, uh, author of Mad in America, goes through an incredibly detailed analysis to show that what were later to be known as the, in, in DSM, you know, two or one or whatever, um, manual of psychiatric disorders, that the disease that they named as schizophrenia was almost entirely caused by the drug that they used to treat it. Mm. It was almost a one-to-one identity. So the symptoms were shuffling gait, uh, incoherent ideation, slobbering. You know, it was like an awful set of symptoms. And it turned out that Thorazine actually caused those symptoms. So it was a vicious cycle. Once you got the Thorazine, you had the symptoms, and then you got more Thorazine because you needed to cure the symptoms that were caused by the disease, and it went around and around and around in a circle. So that's the most extreme example. But there's there are probably, you know, a third of the diagnoses in the um, uh, dsm 4 I guess it's called now, were probably the, the result of finding a drug, having it um, used in people, and either causing those side effects uh, or diseases or curing them, whatever. It it became almost impossible to tell. And then, of course, you needed another drug to cure the side effects of the previous drug, and it went on and on and on in a circle. And that's why 100,000 people are dying every year from the confusion that they've created, because it's really extremely confusing. Um, so the diagnosis business continues to the, I mean, I guess the most angering current version is this idea of ADD where they, where they created this drug Adderall and then they had to figure out a way to sell it. So they came up with this, uh, diagnosis, which has, you know, it's so broad and, and, and ridiculous that it's not even clear that it makes any sense at all. So that's particularly insidious. Yeah. So it's, we call it the diagnosis business. Uh, so the modern world, of course, insists that we are all really sick. I mean, the goal is to think is to convince most people that the world is sick, uh, excuse me, that we're sick. I mean, they're willing to acknowledge that the world is can provoke a certain anxiety, but more important is to get as many people as possible to admit that they're really ill up to a point. I mean, they can continue to go to work, but they need help. So the new generation of medications... Now, Thorazine was an example of a drug that didn't allow you to go to work. Mm. 
you cannot go to work on Thorazine. You can only be institutionalized. So the key to the, to the current generation of medications is that you can go to work. You can function. You can take um, Paxil or uh, whatever, the you know, um, Prozac, and you can go to work. You can take Adderall, and in fact, you can work better. Um, you can work more efficiently. You can stand a boring manufacturing job and repeat uh, rote messages, uh, rote uh, behaviors from from those medications. So uh, that's been a big shift. And in fact, the only drug that was not manufactured to cure a disease was LSD. It's so fascinating. This They were just experimenting and... Uh, they came up with this drug at Sandoz. They had no use for it. And it's, it, it, I mean, in a way, it's, it, it makes sense. It's, it's a drug that doesn't do anything except change your life in a way, right? <laughs> it, 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 it's re- literally the only drug that was never intended to cure a specific problem, um, which I always found fascinating. So uh, the other thing we talk about is the FDA. And the FDA... Um, the, the central function of the FDA and its origins, like the American Medical Association, was to keep alternative medicines um, off the market. So the American Medical Association, there's a long, exhaustive, but interesting um, critique of the founding um, of the uh, American Medical Association in homeopathy called The Divided Legacy by Harris Coulter. But essentially what happened was, right around the turn of the century, Homeopathy and uh, native medications from the Indians were more effective and more practiced in America than mercury, which makes sense, right? It didn't kill the patient. If it didn't work, at least you survived the treatment. So the American Medical Association was founded, and there's a statue of Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy in Washington, D.C., a large statue saying what a great guy he was. It's still there. Because homeopathy was practiced by more doctors than mercury poisoning around the turn of the century in America. So the American Medical Association was founded in order to defeat these quack medicines, which were herbs and homeopathy. Um, So the FDA, in a way, is an inheritor of that. The FDA, they obviously have failed miserably at protecting us from poisonous medicines because people are dropping dead right and left from them or suffering from them. But their goal is and was to keep alternative medicines off the market and calling them quackery. So they spend a lot of time and energy. I mean, this is not the role they're publicly acknowledging that they're performing, but this is the the kind of a key function is to make sure that alternative medicines never gain any recognition. So every time the word homeopathy appears in a public statement, uh, you'll have to say this isn't really an effect. There's no proof that this works. Mm. And that's a very powerful role they have. Just like the American Cancer Society was um, an advocate of tobacco uh, use until the 50s. And they knew from actually research done in part by Nazi Germany, because Hitler was a great anti-smoking advocate, they knew that, that uh, lung cancer was caused by tobacco, but their goal was to convince Americans that it wasn't until it was too late, and they finally, at one point, switched over when the evidence was, was overwhelming. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be, to be fighting over, and, you know, no one has ever explained exactly what a placebo is. Like, why does a placebo work, right? I mean, it's a fascinating question, right? But the FDA always has the placebo effect and the double bind. In the double bind study, you've got the the water or the sugar pill and you've got the medication. And often the placebo works as well or better than the actual medication sure. that's supposed to be powerful, yeah. right? Right. So, so we concluded from this that the one thing that every... This is on the subject of side effects. The one thing that every medication does is not that it cures somebody or even pretends to cure somebody, but that it creates side effects. So the modern medication is guaranteed to produce side effects. And we've all seen those hilarious commercials where they say, if you have a heart on for four hours or you're almost dead or, you know, whatever, call your doctor like you'd trust him at that point, right? But 
you know, so the one thing that's essential to modern medication is that it does cause side effects. Every, that's the one thing that every medicine has in common is that it produces unintended results that can be anything from mildly irritating to toxic. Yeah, as we say, the central effect of every drug is that it produces unhealthy side effects, new disease, new symptoms the user didn't have before he or she took the medicine. These side effects are the body's self-protection. It's a way of saying no to drugs, and they are ignored at your own peril. Drug makers would never lose a penny if they said, would never, we said, we guarantee you will experience one or more side effects or your money back. The central effect of every drug is that it produces unhealthy side effects, new disease, new symptoms. So essentially, it's a self-propane. It's like every commodity, it's like a lifestyle. You know, when you buy one, no product is alone anymore. You buy a lifestyle of products, right? You buy a group. You buy a way of, you know, of seeing the world. It's the same with medication. No medication in the world now doesn't lead to another series of symptoms and diseases and medications. It's a cluster. And so the only way actually to avoid that is to find alternatives outside of that world. There's no choice. If you enter that world, you're going to be taking five drugs. And I've heard so many stories of people, and, I, you know, I take one, uh, but, you know, a mild one. I've heard so many stories of people who, near the end of their life, are on 13, 15, yeah, right. 20 medications. I have a friend, um, actually, who I've collaborated with, Roger, who's had horrible disease, and he's on 20 medications. And he can't even tell anymore which ones are working and which ones aren't. Mm -hmm. But it's just an, an incredible, I mean, he's spending thousands of dollars hundreds of dollars, if not thousands, he's in France with medicine. If he were buying that here, he'd be spending five, ten thousand dollars a month on this complex of medications that are all clustered together as a lifestyle or a death style. Anyway, so side effects are an inevitable product of the overall direction of medicine and the drug industry and its approach to disease. They're a war an ongoing warning almost totally ignored, a symptom, the symptom that something is deadly wrong. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, this is, once again, this was an older critique, but, you know, people are still, the interesting thing is very enlightened, smart people in the radical milieu often will have this blind spot when it comes to this. They'll say, okay, I know I could probably find an alternative, but this works pretty well instead of, you know, um, and I'm in the same position, instead of losing weight, instead of meditating, instead of doing whatever, I'm going to take these drugs that are about blood pressure. Most common are blood pressure and cholesterol. And like personally, I feel this incredible uh, pressure because I'm a patient at Kaiser and I'm 70 years old, essentially, almost. They have, they want to get me on a certain number of drugs. They want to get me taking uh, blood pressure medication. Uh, they want me taking uh, cholesterol medication. And every, uh, every time they get ready to prescribe it, I say, well, I want to take the test again. And the results are more normal and they stop doing it. I mean, this is a relentless pressure that people are under to succumb to this. Um, and it's important to remember, like, it's not just medical collaboration, it's social collaboration. That's really my point, right? When you capitulate to this, you're not only saying, well, you know, okay, you're also saying, I can't fix it myself. The autonomy is taken away from you. And that's even more important ideal. I think it's more important to, it doesn't really matter if they're keeping people alive. It, it, it's, it matters that they're keeping people alive as slaves. I mean, that's really their the focus of what they're doing. I mean, it's a very important impulse that people under the guise of life or death succumb to. And even, I know very few people who are, who have been in the situationist milieu, who are anarchists at my age, who don't succumb to that pressure. You know, at the older you get, the more tempting it is, right, to give into that because, you know, I'm supposed to not feel well at my age, or I'm supposed to not feel as good as I did, right? And I, I, I think that's a very insidious force, actually. And, you know, I've tried to resist it. I mean, not totally effectively, but we have um, an ad that I found particularly interesting that appeared um, in France in the early 70s. And it's interesting to see how far the drug industry will go in telling the truth about the world in order to get you to take drugs. So this is a, an ad that I think went further than almost anyone I'd ever read. Okay, so this is 
an ad for a, a French antidepressant called uh, Timidine or Timidine, T-I-M-O-D-Y-N-E. One more time, he woke up tired. He doesn't suffer except occasionally for back from back pain. He starts his workday listless, listlessly. During the day, things seem to improve, but the following day again, he decides to see you, meaning the psychiatrist. Your clinical exam doesn't reveal any abnormalities in this relatively young patient with no specific history of illness. Your diagnosis. diagnosis. He is responding to all the assaults of fast-paced urban life in a stressful environment. Prescribe timidine, three capsules in the morning, three capsules at night. I mean, this is saying this guy is basically normal, but we don't give a fuck. We want him to take our drug, <laughs> right? And this is an sure. ad that was published. Yeah. So, you know, like a lot of other people, we made up our own drug. And we couldn't resist, right? Because, you know, it's kind of a form of accepted social satire. But, you know, we had our own. And I actually did an ad, um, which I think you might have seen, it's showing an Egyptian protester um, throwing a rock in a demonstration. And uh, the drug is called, one word, can't fit in at all. Introducing can't fit in at all. A psychosocial breakthrough drug. For those patients who have never found a place in this world... Can't fit at all suppresses, and this is the same initials as OCD, ongoing critique disorder permanently. Side effects. Grand mal, uh, that was, that's like grand mal is in uh, epilepsy, but with two L's, right? Instead of one. Grand mal euphoria. <laughs> CCS. Compulsive compliance syndrome. Irreversible ennui. <laughs> product out of warranty hypertension. Tourette's Twitter reflex at Eli Lilly. If you're part of the problem, increase your dose. <laughs> so, I mean, I think those, I think people need to do that. I think it's like a way of fighting this off. So, some of the other diseases we had were conformatox, a drug designed to give the patient access to those areas of the brain that store socially acceptable language and behavior. For the outsider who desperately wants in, having realized the futility of contrarian behavior. Invisible, I-N-V-I-S-B-I-L. Designed for the patient who feels that his or her pre very presence is the cause of negative thoughts or feelings from peers, particularly at work. Allows the patient to disappear while still being able to collect a paycheck. <laughs> Hushamax. For the patient whose verbal outbursts show signs of growing lucidity and passion redirects the verbal impulse to parts of the brain that store memories from the pre-language experience of early childhood. Gaga is more than a side effect. It is a goal. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I think people really need to, on an individual level, consider their relationship to drugs and the, and the pharmaceutical industry, but even street drugs and other drugs, like exactly why are they taking this? What's the goal? I mean, I know people want to have fun and it's a cruel world and this is a way to enjoy themselves. So I'm not trying to be a prude, but I just think there's, there's, there's way too much acceptance of drugs in general and too little consideration of it. Okay. So, I mean, I, I've tried to touch on a bunch of different issues here. I mean, it's a very complex topic and I, I really do think a lot of good research has been done and a lot of good um, uh, counter drug industry propaganda has been written in the last 10, 15 years. But I think there's still an idea that there's some redemption possible here. And, and I know that's kind of contradicted by the idea of the Oxycontin epidemic, for, for, for example. I mean, there was one thing I thought that was really interesting is that Bill Maher, and I, I think he's an idiot, actually, um, but he did do some research and he found out that there is an almost complete numerical overlap between the rate of voting for Trump in the in the last election, obviously, and the rate of drug addiction mm -hmm. for with OxyContin. Yeah. And I, I do think it's a huge factor in the kind of backstory of how someone like that could get elected and what people are thinking and not thinking. Because I feel like, you know, I mean, I know it's a cliche, there's trailer trash, there's 
methadrine, there's OxyContin. But in fact, there is an overlap with that. There are people who are drugging themselves into stupidity um, at an epidemic rate, and the system wants it, right? If, you know, if you're not going to get these people to be on a high level of employability, like in Silicon Valley or something, you know, better that they're the stupefied. I think there's, you know, a sense that that's a very effective uh, technique for, I don't know what you think about that, but. Well, I mean, my views are fairly controversial in that I'm a lifelong teetotaler, so. But, you know, your lifelong teetotaler, you mean people find that to be prudish or? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my experience with that was, um, and I, you know, I think not maybe that different from yours with that. I had, um. You know, a father who self-destructed from, you know, self from it was a doctor from medication and alcohol. And I guess typically you go two ways from that. You think, oh, that's cool. You know, that's an interesting lifestyle. Or you think, can't go down that road. Yeah. Very, and, and so I feel like, you know, I mean, without trying to be more moralistic about it, the fact that I'm still doing this and still relatively healthy at, you know, senior age mm-hmm. has something to do with like reacting against that. So I wouldn't really, and I know you're out there working constantly and, you know, doing, have a lot of energy for this. And so, I mean, I, I don't think you're a bad advertisement for that. Oh, uh, no, I, I, nobody does, but, but, oh, okay, I, but, I, but I'm not fun to be around in, in, in exactly the way that you're implying. Yeah. I mean, I think fun's highly overrated and, sure. you, you know, I mean, Anyway, so okay, so so that's your take on it is to just be very focused and not take in those distractions that will lead you away from your yeah your strategy. I mean, I, right, correct. Yeah, I mean, okay. and and until I, I, there there are, yeah yeah that that's the, the long and short of it. I mean, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting about that is that you know um, I actually one of the I mean I took I took um, peyote but I never took LSD. I'm like the only person oh. in my no. Didn't take it. Smoked some pop, and I'm like one of the only people in my generation who didn't um, take it. And I don't think this is a moral argument, but like, I think it's maybe a good way to end is that, you know, all these people. It's almost like the same thing as going to Burning Man. All these people took LSD. All these people go to Burning Man, and somehow, despite the life changing um, effects of the drug, they've managed every one of them without exception has managed to reintegrate themselves into this world and accept all of its assumptions. (laughs) And so I wonder like, how does that work exactly? Like if it's so irreversibly transforming, how do you manage to fit into this very unpsychedelic, cruel world? How does that work? And I think that's really an argument, you know, how, how, I'd like to hear a response to that, actually. Yeah. Maybe, so, maybe that'll be something that we'll talk yeah. about the next time we sit down. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I think that's maybe an okay place to cool. call quits. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.